The Trek Files, Season 8, Episode 3, Directorial Commitments, 1968. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Welcome back, all you Star Trek fans, all you Star Trek historians, and yes, canonist, as I say that lovingly. Hey, you, you Trekheads, look, all you Trekophiles spelled with an F, you know who you are. Um, we're going to do a dive onto the directorial side of things today and even cover a couple of eras of Star Trek. So you know the routine. Check us out at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. That's where our documents of the week are. Today, we're starting in the 1960s, but we're going to... We're going to proceed apace into the 80s and the 90s and beyond. Uh, check out those documents. Here's a little audio sample, but then hang around. I'll be right back with this week's guest. Dear Fred, I have a tentative plan worked out for directorial commitments. Should we be picked up for a full 26 shows, and should we be able to continue immediately onto the 17th show without a layoff? As you are aware, if we know soon enough, we can have Judd Taylor to do our 17th show, and he would commence preparation immediately upon completing his next segment. This means that we have to know about a pickup by Friday, October 11th, so that we can give him instructions to report for preparation the following Monday, October 14th. Well, there you have it, Trekophile, spelled with an F. If you didn't realize what a juggling match producing as well as directing any television, much less a Star Trek, could be, there you go. From the words of the great Bob Justman there to Fred Freiberger, who was the third season showrunner producer, much maligned over the years, but very much involved with trying to get a show out. That was his charge. Our documents this week are all about the directing struggles in the 60s and what life was like for a director. And so I'm really thrilled to have someone who worked both sides of that aisle, both on the money and production side, as well as, yes, directing a fair amount of Star Treks himself. Welcome back to the Trek Files, David Livingston. David, so glad you could join us again. Thank you, Larry. Hey, what's a, I, now? This is obviously not your era, and and I know with streaming and with digital shows, we're we're kind of in a whole new realm these days too. But just glancing at that and knowing the world that you as as a starting off as a unit production manager just with budgets and then progressing to a line producer. And then crossing over and working the other side of the aisle, helming shows and doing so many great directing assignments. Uh, what comes to mind when you look at the world of, of both the, the director there with those deal memos and then just watching Fred Freiberger and Bob Justman here scrambling to try to, you know, fill up their director slot? That's something that never changes, right? Um, it's exactly right. It, it hasn't changed. At least it hadn't changed in, in my era. So I was looking at uh, the fact that it was seven days of uh, prep and seven or eight days of shooting and and that you just had to keep the ball rolling and that there was there was no time to take any time off because once series production begins, uh, if you any time you ever have to shut down, it costs you a lot of money. 
the only the only major difference was the amount of the uh, amount of money that the directors were making, which uh, has grown exponentially. But I guess everything else has as well in life. Yeah. Do they uh, the, now? Obviously, they had a full contract. They were like template, you know. Uh, yeah. Contracts they fill out. These are just like little quickie deal memos and getting the dates and things in place. But yeah, in episodic television, uh, everything is scale. So uh, the Directors Guild uh, negotiates with the uh, producers uh, and uh, to determine what those scale rates are, and those are not violated, so that no director comes in thinking he's going to make less than any he or she is going to make any less than any other any other director. So it's a it's a standard uh, uh, a boilerplate uh, deal that you don't have to negotiate. Right. And you can see that the, the good old copies here, they've typed in the specific, you know, agent and, and director, but all right. the deal bit is, is a boilerplate. Basically. That's correct. Yeah. It's yeah. All, all standard and uh, nothing, nothing changes. I, I saw one opt out clause. Uh, so you could have that because a, a director may be up for a feature film or something and, and, and the agent would ask for an opt out. But that doesn't really affect the uh, con contractual obligations and the pay that that would uh, transpire if he actually took the assignment. Yeah, and the, these are particular couple I pulled here: uh, Mark Daniels and uh, Joseph Pevney. Joe Pevney, two of the classic directors for Star Trek, and, and yeah, long time. Yeah, I was really uh, I I didn't really see all those names grouped together, but it's quite a quite a, an impressive group of. Uh, Judd Taylor, all those guys, they're very, very impressive. Um, but it's, but that, that his cover letter, now, the, apart from the deal memos, this, this feeling of here's our slots, we've got to fill them, we've got people dropping out, like you said, somebody got a movie, somebody got a, I, I know, better offer, however they're juggling. They, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of respect. Now, we were lucky enough, Ralph Sinensky is really the last surviving director from this era, and I got a chance to talk to him. We've shared comments from him over on the Trek Files. He was actually the rare case, as many classic episodes as he did, huge shows, uh, was let go, not because he was fired in the middle of an episode, which is so rare, and it really wasn't his fault that they had, at its 60s level, but basically his production was, sh was delayed because of a, of a wardrobe. They were pioneering some spacesuits. Stop me if you've heard spacesuits being a headache for people. But they, they, they were disrupted. They were shooting the Tholian web and disrupted because these spacesuits were like behind schedule. They're basically stitching the guys into them while they're trying to shoot and he's rejuggling his schedule. And it was also the time when Paramount had just bought Desilu and was trying to show the world that they were not going to let anybody get away with running over. And he was just caught in the crosshairs, very unfairly. So, you know, but that, that idea of people coming and going. And in fact, Herb Wallerstein was who was brought in to finish that show. Uh, but those kinds of things just drive you crazy. On one hand, you can have a perfectly easygoing assignment and, and you know, coming into it and then going out, but then things do happen, right? Well, it's the vagaries of uh, episodic television. I mean, we've had, we had uh, one actor on, uh, on The Next Generation um, who killed himself in the middle of the episode and we had to recast. Um, it was horrible, a horrible, horrible experience. And, and my heart went out to the poor guy, but, but uh, you then have, you got to keep shooting. Um, so it's, you never know what life is going to throw you. Uh, life doesn't just kowtow to uh, episodic television. You got to, you got to roll with the punches. Yeah. I, uh, 
But the, you, you uniquely, though, were on both sides of this fence. Were you in the position? What was the position on Next Generation? I mean, I know Bob Justman in the, in the early days, speaking of Bob Justman, was in that early, the early scramble to get the show going and everyone was kind of put in and, and Bob Justman could cover those directors in post-production and giving writing notes. Uh, but as things settled out and you were there early on as, as you know, production manager, kind of the budget guy, and then your duties and title increased over the years. But what was your relationship as far as um, like the directing on the directing uh, scheduling and selection and all that? How did that grow? Uh, well, again, uh, Bob initially had uh, a lot of input in that. Um, I'm not sure at, when I, I was the production manager until um, uh, getting into uh, uh, Christmas. I was actually going to leave the show, and because I didn't want to do episodic television. And uh, Bob oh, and Rick, really? Yes, yeah. really. Uh, Bob and Rick uh, made me an offer I couldn't refuse by uh, giving me the line producer job. So I got more money and less and less uh, to do. So uh, who can turn that down? Um, and subsequent to that, over the as the years progressed, I did have some input in recommending directors to Rick, but it was always Rick who made that decision. Mm. And when when Gene passed the torch on to Rick uh, at Christmas in '87, uh, at that point on, it was uh, Rick's call as to who the directors were going to be. And of course, there was a great family of of directors eventually, yeah. um, with new blood coming in all the time. So I guess what you're saying is you were you were the first filter if people sent their reels over or their agents got in touch. Yes, for that particular uh, area. But Rick might hear somebody, or he might get recommended mm -hmm. somebody, or or whatever. And then he, Rick also established the DIT School, which was a director in training, where he over the course of of all of the uh, all of the series that he was the executive producer on, he allowed uh, uh, at least a dozen actors and a dozen behind the scenes people mm -hmm. to go to director and training school, and subsequent to that, actually direct for the show. So it wasn't always outside directors. He was gracious enough to allow those who actually worked on the show to end up being able to direct, which right. was a, a gift a gift to all of us. And I'm eternally grateful for. For that attorney, uh, for that opportunity from him, which is how you stepped in, right? I know. If we think of like Jonathan uh, Frakes and Lavar, and finally Gates and and Roxanne, and and on down the line, some of the actors, Tim Russ and Robbie McNeil, and uh, as the sh as the years went by, uh, Avery, um, but a lot of the behind, like you said, yourself, uh, Dan Curry, Rob Legato from Visual Effects, Bob Lederman was a director. Uh, you know, uh, was that unique in the industry, or was that kind of a standard um, shows do that as as things progress but i have never seen it to the extent that it was here um the directors of both directors of photography uh jonathan west and, and marvin rush um and people that don't i would say don't traditionally move from one role into mm -hmm. directing uh so rick made it clear that if you were willing to put in the time to study in dit school which was observing things on the set you know, on your own time and, and really studying the show and getting, getting the lay of the land. If you were willing to make that commitment, uh, Rick was willing to, to take a chance on you. And that, that was pretty extraordinary. On a lot of other shows, actors get it because they have the power on the show. And, but this was, a, this was unique. Yeah. Certainly, 
Yeah, Rick, Rick was certainly unique in that regard. And your first time to direct was uh, the Manchurian Candidate show? Uh, no, that was the second one. That oh, okay. Power play. Uh, <laughs> the first one was uh, Mind's Eye. Um, That's what I meant by Manchurian Candidate. Is that the man? Which? Yeah. Okay. Was that the Manchurian Yes, the Mind's Candidate? Eye, where Jordy. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Well, now you have to tell me what I'd be after, <laughs> I have no recollection. Yes. I'm a, I, and I'm so embarrassed because I am a huge John Frankenheimer fan, and The Manchurian Candidate is certainly in my top 10 movies of all time. And I actually tried to, I remember now, I, I tried to do something from that movie. I don't even remember what the moment was, but I said, I got to do one Manchurian moment, Manchurian Candidate moment. I don't know if anybody will recognize it, but I will. So maybe you can figure it out. I don't even remember now. I got to go back and look at it. Well, that discussion brings it up. As far as episodic direct, we, we laugh about how in motion pictures, the director is the king. But in TV, it's unless you're kind of in a regular pool of directors, you're, you're the odd one out. Everybody else is the family. And an episodic director comes in randomly. You are the uh, flavor of the week. But I, but I was uh, in a very unique position because I was also a producer on the show. Mm -hmm. So I got cut a lot of slack. And so when I tended to... I'll use the word misbehave. Um, <laughs> the the boom would come down, but it wouldn't crush me. And Rick would hire me again. Uh, I had the reputation for pushing the envelope probably more than most people would want me to. But Rick was always willing to uh, to stay in my corner. But episodic directors are a unique breed. Um, again, they have no input in the script. They have, they go to casting sessions, but they don't make the final decision. The executive producers make the casting decisions. They don't participate in post-production other than doing their director's cut, which can be totally changed by, uh, by the producers. So basically your only control is, is those moments on the set where you're setting up the shot and filming the scene. And, and keeping, the, keeping the gears turning and keeping the clock. Yeah, you, you, you yeah, run the set. Uh, it's right. your set for those seven or eight days. But that's really your only significant involvement in the show. Right. And the support staff, everybody from the script supervisor to the, to the assistant directors, to all the crews on stage, camera, lighting, everything, they're the family and they're there. And they're in a good situation, they're supporting you. In a good situation, they're supporting you. In a bad situation, they're rebelling against you. So <laughs> you want to you keep the crew on your side uh, and you want to be invited back. That, the thing about an episodic director is, you don't want to have on your resume one a bunch of single episode shows because it shows that uh, they weren't interested in you enough to bring you back. So it's a it, it's a tough it's a tough hole. Yeah, and and even looking at the '60s memo, one thing that changes is you were talking about your 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 overlap there with something you could you know uh, Manchurian Candidate. But directors have no idea. Like it's just a numbered slot in the beginning. It's totally the random what episode you wind up with. Exactly. I, uh, you, you, you get your uh, script and you start to shake because you don't know what to expect. Directors on a feature film or in any other thing know what they're going to get going in. But you're exactly right. It's, 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 uh, uh, it's, it's a roll of the dice to see what you get. Sometimes you get a, a masterpiece of a script and sometimes you get a clunker. And your job is to just try and deliver 
the material for whatever it is and find the emotional core to an episode and deliver that no matter what the uh, value of the script is. Yeah. Knowing that you might be getting uh, the 19th colored change pages the day you sit down to shoot. Well, that that's normal anyway in episodic. <laughs> pages are always coming in. And uh, um, that's the other thing. The writers keep keep tweaking, which you have to show respect for that. But because you only have seven days to prep and the writers don't have a limited amount of time, they don't really get to do a firm polish. And every night you're getting new pages to take home and try and absorb, uh, especially on a new series. That was one of the problems that we had in the first year of The Next Generation was scripts were always late and, and things were always changing on a daily basis in terms of what we were shooting. Yeah. What was your favorite of your shows you directed? Is that a fair question? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, <laughs> my favorite one was a Voyager that uh, I always like to get off the ship. Rick said, you you know, you just want to wreck something. So uh, I did a, 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 a first part of a two-parter where it, we did World War II on Voyager. I forgot the name of the episode. The Killing Game, I think. The right? Killing Game. Right. And I, I had a great time doing that. I got to have Jerry Ryan sing a torch song in a uh, in a uh in a 40s uh french cabaret cafe so that that's my favorite but the mo the one that's most emotionally uh is compelling would be the visitor for deep space nine mm -hmm. uh that seems to and that's not really a star trek show that's really a father and son relationship show it just has a science fiction component to it but it's really about a father and son and that to me has the most emotionally affecting uh uh ability to it right well you were the king of the i'll say the berman era you've got 62 hours uh, across all four shows uh most of them on voyager uh but, but the visitor is a special show and and just to wrap things up um i know one of your passions right now is uh, working with the hollywood food coalition that john billingsley has been making uh getting out there and the trek talks marathon that we just happened um you were like involved in that and the visitor was a standalone panel there that got a lot of attention but um i know yeah, you've been was... working yeah photography and now and now your work with uh, hofoco <laughs> very good no that's our new uh, logo we were uh a different name but it's we're now hofoco and uh and thank you for that plug it's a very worthwhile organization and trek talks was extraordinarily successful and john and i are grateful to all of the in front of and behind the camera uh people that showed up we had a hundred percent uh, everybody that agreed to appear ended up appearing. We had 100% attendance, so uh, I don't think uh, I thought I thought that was amazing, and and I'm grateful to all those people and uh, grateful to everybody who put this thing together. Yeah, well, I know that uh, my buddy here, John Champion, and the Roddenberry podcasts and and Rod for his matching grant all jumped on and John and... John was amazing. He was one of the uh, one of the three producers of of the show. And uh, and and Rod had a, an amazing matching grant. So, again, kudos to all of them. And and uh, it's just a reflection of of how one man had a dream about how uh, that that human that mankind can come out on the positive end of things. And we've all sort of been living that dream since then. And uh, so, kudos to Gene and and to how the Roddenberry Foundation is continuing that. Uh, that dream. 
Yeah. Well, kudos to you. I know uh, here after active directing, photography has been your passion. You've done gallery shows and and uh, and now working with um, such a good nonprofit like uh, Hollywood Food Coalition too. So thank, thank you, Larry. Dave. Yeah, thank yeah. you. And thanks for sharing your Star Trek with us. This is just a drop in the bucket. And I've enjoyed having you on Portal 47, my open house one year. And uh, uh, I, I sometime down the road, I'd love to have you back, David. We, we go back a long way, Larry. You, <laughs> you look a little bit older than when I first knew you. What happened? I don't know. I could ask you the same question, Dave. Okay, that's, that's fine. <laughs> Quid pro quo. Okay, that's fine. There you but go. We, there you we go. We go back a long way, everybody. It's it's scary to think of that, but um, I'm just glad you're here sharing from that from inside the bullpen with us, David. I'm so glad thanks. I'm still I'm glad I'm still around to be able to share. So again, thank you for the invite. You're very welcome. We'll do it again sometime. You got it. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. All of our documents and your chance to comment are available at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. Now for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47 at larrynimacek.com. That's me. <laughs> That's where you can link in for all the new Trek Files swag and shirts at our Tee Public shop too. Trek well, everybody. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.